1 John 3, 11 to 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has no has eternal life in, residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now Tim is gonna go and preach on this passage. Okay, um, hopefully there'll be a picture on, on the screen. Now, Alison says to me um, sometimes in a way of encouragement, uh, why do you use an illustration you know nothing about? Um, but what she forgets, and so my first illustration, I'm not musical, but my mother is, so my mum is grade eight piano and violin, so I grew up listening, um, while she was doing the ironing, the range of, of Gilbert and Sullivan, from the ridiculous to a bit more um, cultured, sort of uh, Beethoven and, and Mozart, so although the, the music genes didn't rub up for me, I grew up listening to music. I don't know, are we gonna have a picture on the screen? Possibly, possibly not. Okay, well, the choice is you can see it on the screen or I can sing it to you, or we can forget the illustration altogether. Um, I can't remember what the notes are now, but um, four notes in music. And if I played them to you, you would, you would recognize them straight away. But I'm gonna tell you the piece of music and then you can sing it back to me. Four notes. Do you know what it is? Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Okay. And uh, four famous notes. How, how'd they go, James? Oh, okay. Um, but you all know what they are. And when you listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, what you have is that the repetition of those four notes, but in variations of those four notes. So as you listen to Beethoven's Fifth, you think to yourself, I'm sure I've heard those notes before. And you have, all right? But there are different variations of it. It's called, in musical terms, it's called a motif. Is that correct? There we are. So I do know some things about music. I had looked that one up, actually. Okay, we might see the pictures in a minute. And really, that is what One John is. It is a theme that is repeated. And there'd be different variations of that theme. 
So as you go through 1 John, and I think Neil's mentioned this before, it's not linear. It is, as you go around the spiral staircases, different views of the same subject. What we're going to do is, it's been a little while since we've done 1 John, so a slight recap, and then we look into this passage this evening. By the way, uh, Shona quoted uh, 1 John 3.16. If you want a set of verses to learn off by heart, can't go wrong with just learning loads of 316s from the Bible. So John 316, 1 John 316, 1 Timothy 316, 2 Timothy 316, 1 Corinthians 316, 2 Corinthians 316, Malachi 316, Revelation. They're all good verses to learn. Okay, that is that Beethoven's fifth? It is. Okay. But it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at 1 John. So a quick uh, recap. There's a phrase that occurs four times in the book of 1 John, which states in fact, the reasons that John has written his epistle. And it's this phrase here. I am writing these things. It deals with these four subjects. It deals with heresy. So that's chapter 2, verse 26. He says, I'm writing these things to deal with this whole subject of false teaching. Then he, uh, 2, chapter 1, I write these things. And it's dealing with the subject of holiness or Christ-likeness being different. Then in chapter 5, verse 13, in fact, the main reason for the book, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. So let's talk about the future hope that we have. And in chapter 1, verse 4, I write these things that your joy may be complete. So it's talking about happiness. And so those are the four big reasons why John writes his epistle. And it's simply this. Right belief leads to right behavior. And if you get those two things right, you will have hope and happiness okay that's sort of what one john is um about and it's hard to give a structured outline of the whole book but you have this sort of cyclical basis of of different subjects that keep coming up throughout one john and really john is writing to encourage us to examine ourselves to see whether we're walking as we should be There's a phrase in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, that says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. So that verse from 2 Corinthians really sums up what 1 John is about. And as you go through 1 John, you have lots of tests, lots of ways to examine ourselves to see whether we're walking as Christians. And they're all based on God's character. So in, in 1 John, we're told that God is light, We're told God is love, and we're told God is life. And that's God's character described in 1 John. And actually, the tests that John gives us as Christians to examine ourselves by relate to God's character. Okay, so I've got what I call the head test. It's God is light. It's all about truth. Knowing what we believe is is gospel truth. Then there's the heart test which is all about um, just obedience and following him. And then there's what I call the hands test, doing stuff. It's about relations, okay? And as you go through 1 John, there's a whole load of subjects about our view on the scriptures, our view on salvation, our view on sin, our view on separation, our view of all these kind of things. And one of them is our view about each other as Christians, And that's what this chapter or this section is all about. 
And just rewinding, by the way, I've been away quite a bit, and so I'm not sure I've heard any of the One John series so far, and we're halfway through the book. But uh, last time, I think it was Sam, you were doing it? Um, I went to listen to it, but it wasn't on the podcast when I went to listen to it, so there we are. Um, last time, there was this incredible stark contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. That was in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And really the flow of this chapter is this. Children of God practice righteousness. And that is outworked by loving other Christians. And the opposite is children of the devil practice sin and hate their brother. That's really 1 John chapter 3. Now that you know that I'm, I'm a musical expert... Okay, hopefully there might be a picture on the next screen. Anyone recognize this person? Oh, yeah. By the way, I've taken my hearing aids out, so if you give a, the wrong right answer, I've no idea what you've said. <laughs> you might have noticed Alison trying to talk to me at the start of the service, and I'm thinking, I haven't got a clue what you're saying, Alison. Um, so that is actually, I'm sure this is what you said, Leonard, or Leonard Bernstein. You've heard of him? Okay, he's famous. Um, he was once asked this, he was asked this question. What is the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra? His reply was this, second fiddle. I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. Yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. That's what he said. And that's really the theme of today. And what we have is two bookends to this passage, which is this phrase, love one another. So you see it in verse 11 and you see it in verse 23. So that sort of sandwiches this whole teaching on love for each other. And this is John's theme, not only in one John, but also in the Gospel of John. So a new command I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you're also to love one another. So it's John 13, it's repeated in John chapter 15. And those verses from John's gospel could easily be fitted into this section in 1 John chapter 3. The, the theme of loving one another has already been dealt with in chapter 2. It will also come out in chapter 4. But if you like, this section is the main section in the book which deals with this theme. It's the challenge of Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And so what we're going to do is look at this, this section in four points. The, the main point would be point three. So if I go too long, points one or two, just tell me to um, hurry along a bit. A point three is the main point, and then a short point, point four. But verses 11 to 15, I've called it the instruction to love. Now, if you Google confusing signs, you get lots of examples. Here is one. Entrance only, do not enter. What do you do when you get that message come to you? What, 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 do I stay here or do I go in? 
okay? There are confusing signs. Now, the start of this section says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That is simple. It is not complicated. It is not confusing. The Bible says here, this is the message, love one another. And John, as he goes through his letter, says, people might try and convince you of different kinds of behaviors, but you need to stick to this foundational message. It is simple to understand, but probably harder to put into practice. It's foundational because in this passage, he refers to Cain right at the beginning. So he, he refers right back to creation effectively and says, this command, this message of loving one another, it's always been the case, right from Genesis. This is the command that you love one another. It will never disappear. It is foundational. And as we go into chapter four, it's based actually in the eternal nature and character of God himself. And you think, well, Cain was a murderer. I'm different to that. No, Cain was a bad man. But we need to remind ourselves of the word of Jesus in John, uh, in Matthew 5, when he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And so this is a key message, the instruction to love. And the problem with Cain was he was probably filled with jealousy and envy and bitterness and resentment. And unchecked, that led to hate. And that unchecked led to murder. And think of another Bible example. It's a big difference between Saul, King Saul, and Jonathan and their relationship to David. Jonathan loved David and wasn't filled with bitterness or jealousy. Saul hated David and it came from jealousy. Now, David, when they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. That was the problem. So the message is simple. The instruction to love is simple. Love one another. It's a clear command. We shouldn't overcomplicate it. We shouldn't make any exceptions or caveats. We shouldn't let seeds of jealousy or bitterness take root or grow. Uh, so that's uh, verses 11 to 15. The second section, um, really verse 16, I suppose, I've called it the illustration of love. How do you define things? Well, certain things have uh, very uh, specific definitions. So for the mathematicians here, Pi is defined as, oh, well, it's basically the ratio between the circumference and the diameter of a circle, okay? It's a very specific definition. Well, someone wants, this is a bit vaguer, someone defined a sweater or jumper as a garment worn by a child when its mother is feeling cold, which is, um, if you've got boys, that is very true, okay? Mum says wear a jumper, the boy said, I don't, I'm not cold. Um, but here in 1 John 3, uh, verse 16, 
you have this simple definition of what it means to love one another. And it's by way of illustration. You have this phrase, by this. Uh, that phrase occurs 11 times in 1 John. By this. So John is defining love. And he says that love is defined and measured by Christ's sacrificial love. That's how we know what love is. This comes out in 1 John chapter 4 um, as well. But it's Christ's sacrificial love. So verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. That is what love is about. It's defined by what Christ has done for us. So if you want to learn to love one another, that is our yardstick. That's our measuring line. That's what we need to fill ourselves with, just how much Christ has done for us. And as we grasp that, as we think about that, that helps us put into practice how we should love one another. So Christ's love for us means that that then outworks in our love for others. It's interesting that um, it says about Jesus Christ that we are to be conformed to his likeness. That's what we were purposed to be, you know, conformed to his likeness, <laughs> to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So in other words, Christ's likeness, being conformed to him, is outworked in the brother-sister relationship. He is the prime example. He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that's the first two points. Those were hopefully quickish, all right? Um, but the, the third point, I've called it the indication of love. And as you go through verses 16 to 18, there are four little points of how love should be shown and to put into practice. And the first is this, we need to see a brother's need. So in verse, um, if I can see it, verse 17, it says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, so there's a phrase, sees his brother in need. I think one of the good things from lockdown, if there were good things from lockdown, is I think we became increasingly aware and conscious of seeing the needs of one another. I think that's what lockdown did, wasn't it? We suddenly became isolated and therefore we were looking out for one another more so. And that's how it should be. We should be seeing one another's need. So loving others means to see their needs as we often see the needs in ourselves. The problem is we are often inward focused. We think about our own situations, but we need to learn to look outward at the needs of others. When Paul was first converted, the Apostle Paul, his need was to be accepted by the local church. Who saw that need? There's a man called Barnabas. So he looked, and other Christians didn't see it, but Barnabas saw that Paul needed to be accepted into the church. There was a man called Apollos. His need was to be taught more fully. Who saw that need? Well, it was a married couple called Aquila and Priscilla. 
Later on, Paul's need was for finance. He needed money to do his gospel work. And it was the churches in Macedonia who saw Paul's need. So we need to learn to look and see each other's needs. Sometimes it's obvious. It might be very clear to us, sort of physical needs. Um, sometimes it might be social needs. People are lonely. Sometimes it might be spiritual needs. People aren't walking with the Lord as they should. How do you, how do you see someone's need without being too nosy? It's difficult sometimes, isn't it? But somehow we need to train ourselves to look outward, away from ourselves. And maybe that's the starting point, determined to focus on others rather than ourselves as we see people's need. And that's what John says here. We need to see our brother in need. Next, we need to sympathize with a brother's need. In another moment of Alison's encouragement, of Alison being a Barnabas, she tells me, I am the worst, world's worst sympathizer. And she's probably right, <laughs> okay. Um, however, I, I don't underestimate the value of sympathizing. I'm the sort of a person, do you know what is sometimes, why is all they want is a hug? And I say, well, we can get this sorted. And Alison doesn't want that. She just wants me to sympathize. So I'm thinking, well, that's not to get the problem fixed, is it? Do you know what, gentlemen, do you know what I'm talking about? Why is she, anyway, I won't go anymore. But the whole idea of sympathy is a biblical thing. Jesus Christ is the great sympathizer. Hebrews 4.15. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And again, it's, it's, it's just looking away from our own needs and taking time to listen, taking time to understand. And sympathizing means that even if I don't get it, I try and put myself in that person's shoes. So if, if a certain issue is, is no particular bother to me, it doesn't fluster me, that doesn't mean to say it doesn't fluster someone else. And I have to learn to understand other people so that I can at least try and sympathize. Do I care? Do I try and understand what people are going through? We need to be sympathetic, understanding, concerned. So this little story is, it's not me at all, but it needs to be me. So a young girl was um, late coming home from school, uh, late for tea, and her mum said, um, they made the obvious demand, where have you been? And this little girl replied that she'd been to a stop to help Jane. Um, and Jane's bicycle had broken in, no, she'd fallen off a bicycle and the bicycle had broken. And, and this little girl's mum said, but you don't know anything about fixing bicycles. And the little girl said, I know, but I just stopped to help her cry. Okay, get the idea? That's a bit, Alison, the conclusion is here, but I've got to learn that. We've got to learn that as a church to sympathize. 
So we need to see a brother's need, we need to sympathize with a brother's need. For, uh, thirdly, we need to supply a brother, brother's need. Just before I go into that, I was gonna, um, I was tempted to suggest a final hymn, which probably very few of you would know. But when I left Cheltenham, I, was, I grew up in Cheltenham, at the age of 16, I left Cheltenham. Our fa final Sunday in Cheltenham, so Dad had been a pastor for church um, well, for 19 years at that point. The final Sunday, we sang a hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds Our Hearts and Christian Love. Some of you might know that one. It's what they call a golden oldie. In one of the verses, it says, we share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. Okay, so we won't want to sing that hymn, but that's the last hymn I sang in Cheltenham before I moved to Clevedon. But we need to supply a brother's need. So that's what it says here in verse um, 16, if anyone has the world's goods. In other words, we all have resources that are to be there for the benefit of other people. What God gives us is not for us to keep to ourselves. So whatever resources we have are therefore, yes, to some extent, our own enjoyment, but they're to be used to help other Christians. That's the whole lifestyle of the early church in Acts chapter four. Those who had stuff made sure that they shared that stuff with other people. That's what Barnabas did. So think about what you have and then ask yourself the question, am I sharing that, using that to supply the needs of others? What can you do? What do you have? It might be a car, a house. It might be money. It might just be time. It's a big resource that you have. It might be just the ability to pray. It might be that you're a good letter writer if you do letter writing these days. It, it could be that you could visit, help with jobs, babysit, open up your homes, use your cars, um, arrange times together, chatting. Maybe, you're, maybe the resource you have is chatability, all right? Okay. But you should be using it to encourage others. <laughs> Don't overuse it, otherwise it might... Anyway, but what you have is what God has given you, not for your own benefit, but to supply the needs of others. And you might think, I haven't got much, but you have. I don't know if you've ever come across the name Andrew Fuller. Maybe some of you have. Have you come across the name William Carey? Maybe a few more of you have. So William Carey was the founder of Modern Missions, went to India. Andrew Fuller was the man behind the scenes who made it possible for William Carey to go to India. And William Carey told Andrew Fuller, I will go down to the pit if you will hold the ropes. In other words, Andrew Fuller, he did what he could to enable others. All right, and that's the kind of attitude we should have. So we should see a brother's need, sympathize for brother's need, uh, supply brother's need, but the biggest challenge is we need to sacrifice for a brother's need. 
Um, and the word, the sort of Greek word, if I like, is agapeo. It's not that gooey, romantic love. It's this sacrificial love, the never-ending, all-consuming sacrificial love. The love that God wants us to share with others is basically without regard for the worth of the person being loved. It's not dependent on that. It is we love without, um, without prejudice, if you like. We want to give to others beyond our means. So it's not only what do we have that we give, it's given beyond our resources. Um, the testimony of Aquila and Priscilla is that they risked their own necks, is the phrase it uses, for Paul's life. So we need to put ourselves in, in the place where we can give to people and serve them sacrificially. That means foregoing some of the things that may be legitimate, but it's not about self-interest. It's about sacrificial love. That is the definition here in 1 John 3, 16. Christ's sacrificial love for us. So we can give out of our wealth, but do we give beyond what we think is our, our resource? It's the, the widow with the, sorry, it's the old authorized version, the widow with the two mites, um, the two coins. She gave everything. So the others were giving out of their wealth and were giving more physically, but the widow in Luke's gospel was giving um, of her all. So that is, if you like, the big chunk of this, this section. It's all about loving one another. So we need to look away from ourselves and see the need of our, our brothers and sisters, sympathize, supply, and sacrifice. And then finally, very quickly, um, I've called it the implication of love. I'm not gonna spend time on this really uh, because these, the rest of this chapter, the themes are developed further in chapters four and chapter five. Also, the end of chapter three is a bit complicated in some of it. So I'll give it to the people doing chapters four and five. But just to say this, um, this sandwich, the two bread bits are the love one another, the two statements love one another. So verse 11 and verse, whatever it is at the end, um, verse 23. All the bits in the middle, if you like, are held together by the bread bits of the sandwich. So what's happening in this section is all the stuff in the middle is being supported by love one another. And verses 19 to 24, basically saying, if you love one another, then the implications of that are for your own good. So in chapter two, in the opposite way, um, John says, if you hate a brother, you will stumble. So it's, it's put it in a negative way. Here, it says, if you love one another, then there will be blessings to you. And so verses 11 to, 19 to 24 deal with the implications to you of loving one another. So the Howlett family, the boys have left home now, um, we try to teach them the Howlett motto, which is a Bible verse, which is this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Ever so easy to say, 
ever so easy to understand, very difficult to put into practice. But it's true because they're the words of Jesus Christ, Acts 20, verse 35. Now, these are the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus is full of truth. So when Jesus says that, we can trust it. And actually, if we're willing to put it into practice, you'll find it does work. The more we give, the more we're blessed. And I'm sure that all of us want to be blessed. And in these verses, I think it gives three little ways in which we can be blessed. And I won't go through them, but uh, one way is this. If we lo love one another, we can be confident in our profession. It gives us assurance, actually. Um, it's in, in this passage, you can dig it out, okay? So we can be confident in our professional faith. Secondly, if we love one another, we can be confident in our prayers. This will come out in chapter five, but in this section, it talks about knowing prayers being answered, but it's based on loving one another. And thirdly, um, if we love one another, we can be confident in our position. We can know that he lives in us. So I'm not gonna delve into those verses now because I'll come out in chapters four and five. But here we have this, this challenge, one of the tests of one John, one of the marks of a Christian outflowing from the, the very nature of God is that we should love one another. We can all see easily what we need, what we want people to do for us. That's easy to see, but we need to look towards others and see what we can do for others. How do we supply the needs of others, whatever the cost? And so that's the challenge of 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. Love one another. So I don't know if you know who's sitting on your left, on your right, even behind you, even in front of you. But those are the people that God has given us to care for. And you might think, oh, no, <laughs> that person on my left, that, they're a real pain. <laughs> okay. But we've got to, the challenge is to love one another. And the more we can do it, the more we'll be blessed ourselves. Right? It's a simple formula but it's complicated to put into practice. So let's pray this week, as we think about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, what he has done for us, that we have in some small measure, a reflection of that love as we care for one another. So that, that's 1 John chapter three, verses 11 to 24. So a recurring theme in 1 John, Okay, so just think of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, reminds you of one John. Just a little thought has come to my mind. Paul uh, refers to lots of people who helped him in his ministry. So you read Romans 16, for example, lots of names there. Three people he does mention are um, basically um, mentioned by number. So you have Secundus, 
Tertius and Quartus, second, third, and fourth. They were people just known by a number, but were used by God to help Paul. There was no first Paul ever mentions. Just an interesting thought, wasn't it? Well, I think it's interesting. So let's be the second, third, and fourth, but you can still be used in gospel. No one's number one. Christ is number one. One of John's styles in both John's gospel and in one John is opposites. And it's quite stark sometimes, isn't it? And one of the uh, opposites we've dealt with tonight and also this morning is lightness and darkness. Okay, so John 8, 12 this morning, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And here in chapter 3, 1 John 3, the children of darkness and the children of light. And um, I think in the Bible, there's probably about 70 or so verses which have both the words dark and light in them. Okay, so it's a big theme of the Bible. And actually, I think if you start from the book of Genesis, it's interesting what it does. So in Genesis 1, God creates the world. And day one, he, he makes like uh, God created light. And this is the phrase it uses six times for the six days. It says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. It was the evening first, followed by the morning. Okay. Then you come to um, verses like this, um, <clears throat> Psalm 30, verse 5. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So the Bible principle basically for believers is night comes before the morning. So when we think about the death of Christ in John 19 and the other gospels, darkness over the whole land. Okay. But then you have the resurrection. So um, in Christ alone, we sang about that, didn't we? Um, in glorious day. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> the, most of it is all about darkness. <clears throat> then in chapter 12, you get a bit of the dawn until at the end of Ecclesiastes, you get light. If you read the book of Job, it's darkness, then light. If you read um, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, uh, he has called us from a darkness into his marvellous light. So John, in both John's Gospel and in 1 John, has this theme of darkness and light. We were children of darkness, but he suffered darkness so that we might become children of light. And the resurrection morn is light bursting forth. It's in... Um, evening and the morning were the first days. So in the Bible, darkness comes before light. Okay. And I think that's, that's deliberate in the Bible. It's, it's, it's teaching that as Christians, we were in darkness, but we're now in the light. The whole crucifixion, darkness, but then came the light. Gracious Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for fellowship we enjoy in the gospel because Jesus is the head of the church and we thank you for that 
Help us as we love you to love each other and to lo love the lost world that we're seeking to win for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, we do just pray you'll be with us this week. Help us to serve you well in whatever capacity that might be. Uh, whatever you have us to do, may we do well. May we do as unto the Lord. And Father, we do pray for the Christmas opportunities coming um, in the next few weeks. We ask that there'll be those who hear about the good news of the Lord Jesus who is the saviour of the world. So be with us, we pray, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.